I want to begin by welcoming all of you who found your way to our live stream. A very Merry Christmas. Christmas looks different this year. Christmas Eve feels very different. We're not gathered in hundreds this year. You might be gathered with just your immediate family, or maybe you're gathered with one or two others, or maybe uh, you're on your own and tuning into this. However, we're celebrating. The Christmas celebration is no less significant. As a church, we have spent the month of December celebrating the theme or exploring the theme of a better Christmas. And we've taken the traditional themes of Advent and looked at what it means to say that Jesus is a better hope, a better peace, a better love, and a better joy. And tonight, as we celebrate Christmas Eve, I want us to focus our attention on the best Christmas. The best Christmas was the first Christmas. It is because of that first Christmas that we have Christmas at all. One of the distinct memories I have from Christmas as a child is maybe not surprisingly opening presents on Christmas morning. Now, this didn't happen every year, but some years as we did that, after we thought all of the gifts had been opened, my dad would get this kind of funny look in his eyes and he would say something like, oh, I think I see one more present. And sure enough, he would reach under the couch or reach into the closet and pull out one final present. This present was usually wrapped in different paper than all the others that we had opened. The look on my mom's face would communicate that this present was a surprise even to her. Like I said, it didn't happen every year, but every year we kind of hoped that it would happen. As kids, we knew that when we saw that gift, Dad had spoken, and usually that final gift was the best gift of all. Well, we see something similar in the passage I'm going to read for you this evening. This passage comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and it says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that might not be the first passage that comes to mind when you think about Christmas We are more used to meditations about shepherds and angels and innkeepers and wise men. But that passage really does capture the essence of Christmas. As a matter of fact, that brief passage summarizes the message of the entire Bible. I'm going to highlight just three truths related to this passage that teach us about the Christmas story and what it's really all about. The first truth is that God has always sought to communicate with us. And we sometimes think that Christmas began with the angelic announcement. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now most of us know that we need to go a little bit further back than that. And often we will go back nine months to the angel's visitation of Mary. For it says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. 
Christmas didn't actually begin with either of those events. If we want to understand the origins of Christmas, we need to go back much further in time. Christmas began in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. The book of Hebrews begins with the words, long ago. And these words remind us that the Christmas story is not actually the beginning of a new story, but the continuation of a much older story. Specifically, the passage says, long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And what that tells us is that God has always sought to communicate with us and that he's used a variety of means to do so. This is the story of the Old Testament. It's really a startling message. It's not surprising to hear that the creator of the universe made us, but it is surprising to think that he longs for a relationship with us and desires to communicate with us. The Old Testament is really a record of God's relationship with his people and his constant attempts to communicate his love for them. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see the numerous ways that God spoke and communicated with his people. God spoke at many times and in many ways. He spoke to Moses from a burning bush. He spoke to Joseph through dreams. He spoke to Job in the whirlwind. He spoke to Elijah in a whisper. He spoke to Daniel in a vision. The list could go on and on. Story after story tells us how God communicated with his prophets and then his prophets were sent to communicate with his people. But there was one great difficulty. This message was not getting through. There was nothing wrong with the message or the messengers, but the people who heard the message either ignored it or rejected it altogether. God was communicating, but we weren't listening. So how do you bridge a communication gap like that? Well, upon hearing sounds in the dark, a little girl became afraid and couldn't sleep. She rushed into her parents' bedroom, begging to sleep in their bed, but they refused. Instead, they prayed with her, sent her back to her room, and told her to remember that God was with her. She went back to her room and tried to sleep, but it didn't work. So she ran back into her parents' room and again asked to sleep in their bed, but again they refused and said, look, God is with you. Go back to your room. So she went again to her room and tried to sleep, and again, it didn't work. So she made her way to her parents' room one more time. This time, they were a little bit less patient. Didn't we pray with you, they scolded? Didn't we tell you and assure you that God is with you? What's the problem? And her reply was classic. God doesn't have any skin on him. H.B. Charles said, before the incarnation, every method God used to declare his love was misunderstood. God didn't have any skin. So his expressions of love were viewed as acts of tyranny. In the incarnation, God perfectly declared his love for us. He spoke in a language we could understand. He did so by becoming one of us. In fact, the term incarnation literally means in the flesh. And this takes us to the second truth we discover about Christmas, which is that God's communication found its fullest expression in Jesus. This is the message of Christmas. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
Jesus is God's gift to a world that had turned its back on him and stopped listening. The most famous Bible verse of all puts it this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, all the prophets who came before Jesus, all of the presents, all of the messages that God had sent were in a sense wrapped in the same paper. Jesus was a completely different kind of gift. He came in different wrapping. I don't mean the swaddling cloths that he was wrapped in at his birth. Jesus came as the Son of God wrapped in human flesh. Verse 3 goes on to say, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Everything that is true about God was seen in the person of Jesus. Listen to a sampling of the way other New Testament writers express this. The Gospel of John put it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory from the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. On one occasion, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The Apostle Paul said this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And elsewhere he said, For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The Apostle John reminds us that no one has ever seen God, but that Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And what all of this means is that while the prophets could tell people what God was like, Jesus could show them. While the prophets could speak about God's mercy, Jesus came and showed and demonstrated God's mercy. People sometimes wonder, what is God really like? Well, we don't have to guess. The Bible's answer to that question is to point to Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. This is why we can say that God's communication with us found its fullest expression in Jesus. But there is more to say. The third thing we learn about the Christmas story here is that God's communication with us was costly but yielded great dividends. The life of Damien de Wooster is a fascinating story. Damien de Wooster spent the last 17 years of his life serving as a medical missionary on the island of Molokai in Hawaii in the latter part of the 1800s. Molokai was the island that Hawaiians who had leprosy were sent away to or exiled to. Leprosy causes Nerve damage and muscle damage, and one of the effects of leprosy is numbness or decreased sensitivity to pain in the hands, arms, and feet. It was at one time thought to be highly contagious, and so sufferers were often sent away to leper colonies in isolation. The leper colony on Molokai was one of the largest in the world. Damien de Wooster developed a love for the people of Molokai. He embraced them. He built a chapel for them. He taught them. Eleven years into his residency on the island, something significant happened. 
One morning as he was pouring boiling water from a kettle into a cup, some of that water spilled out and landed on his bare foot. He didn't feel it. It took him a moment to realize exactly what had happened, and so he took some of that boiling water and he carefully poured it onto his other foot, and he again felt nothing. And in that moment, he realized that he himself had contracted leprosy. Up until that day, Damien DeVooster began every sermon with the words, My fellow believers. But that day, he began his sermon with the words, My fellow lepers. In a small way, that helps us understand something of what the incarnation is all about and what it costs Jesus. The full text of verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then it says, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, to a lot of people, the last part of verse 3 sounds like a bit of a record scratch for a Christmas Eve message after making purification for sins. But we ought not to disconnect these two things. We ought to remember the words in the angel's announcement to Joseph when he announced the coming birth of Jesus. And he said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So how does Jesus do that? How did Jesus make purification for sins? How does he save his people from their sins? Well, this is where the parallel with Damien DeVooster is helpful. Jesus entered our world, and Jesus did more than take our leprosy upon him. Jesus took all of our sin and all of our shame himself. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says it this way, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what I mean by saying that God's communication with us was costly. Jesus left his throne in heaven. He entered our world as a helpless baby, but more than that, he offered up his perfect life In exchange for ours. I told you that these verses not only help us understand the Christmas message better, but in fact, they help us understand the message of the entire Bible. Now, we know there was a 30 year gap between Jesus' entrance into the world as a baby and his death and resurrection. On our calendars, there's a three or four month gap between the events of Christmas and Easter. But from a biblical perspective, you cannot separate these events. You cannot separate the events of Christmas from the events of Easter. It's important for us to meditate on the significance of the incarnation, on Jesus becoming one of us. But in reality, the events of Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his glorification ought to all be understood together. Listen to this familiar passage from the book of Philippians that, like this passage in Hebrews, ties everything together. And it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. And being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the crucifixion. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus. This is good news. I said that God's communication with us was costly, but I also said that it yields great dividends, and those dividends are what we experience. And what I want to say here and what I want to leave you with is the truth we discover at the very end of verse 3. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the reason that is good news is because Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. This means that the Christmas story is not over. Later in the book of Hebrews, we read this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So as we think about the wonder of Christmas, it ought to lead us first to the cradle and then to the cross and ultimately to the crown where Jesus sits on his throne and he reigns and he rules in this world. Well, my prayer for you as we conclude our celebration of Christmas together is the one that we've been praying throughout this month from the book of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.